This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. Keller's helped me here set up an illustration, so I'll try to stay out of his way. I just want to remind you that today is our Family Worship Sunday, and, um, and, and so also on Family Worship Sunday, we kind of emphasize First Sunday prayer and fast, and so fasting is not something necessarily that has to be food. It could be uh, giving up something else. I won't ask you to give up TV today, seeing there's a little event tonight that's going on that many of you might want to, uh, to check out, but uh, maybe give up uh, something just to focus on your relationship with God. Thank you, Keller. Focus on your relationship with God and to pursue Him more. Um, we'll get to this illustration in just a second, but I want to kind of preface this by just giving kind of a disclaimer, because the more that I walk with Christ, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I'm conscious of mysticism. All right, I'm going to find that for you. Some of you may go, what? What's that? All right, by mysticism, generally I mean an overemphasis on the direct subjective experiences that people claim to have with God rather than experiences that are rooted in and interpreted by Scripture. So let me say that again. Overemphasis on direct subjective experiences with God rather than experience rooted in and interpreted by Scripture and reason. And so rather than beginning with a specific passage of Scripture and asking God to illuminate that truth, oftentimes people want to live their lives with a very experience-based way of walking through life and things that spring up from their spiritual imagination. And oftentimes you can recognize a tendency to do this when there's really very little concern with the historical or grammatical context of a passage of Scripture, rather it's Here's what I think this is saying to me. And there's a lot of emphasis on me, what God's saying to me, versus what is God saying in this passage. And then he illuminates it through the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us application. But the interpretation of the scripture doesn't change, but the application does change. And so while a lot of people might say that you know, they have a high value of scripture, yet if they live their lives ignoring for the most part, being in Scripture, yet want to find God in every tree or plant or flower or experience, or you said this or he said that to me, and they want to find God and interpret God through all of those things. And so I, that's my disclaimer. And so be cautious of mysticism. I've talked about that before. But with that being said, I want to emphasize the fact that there really truly is an immaterial spiritual reality that's unseen by human eyes. There is something going on that... Scripture tells us that is um, there, there's heavenly forces, there's evil that's um, ran by Satan and demons, and there's good, and God is behind all this God, holy, and that's his angels are real and true, and they exist. Now, some people want to look and find those things in every turn and every corner, but I do want to emphasize that this spiritual realm, even though it's invisible to the physical eye, does exist, and we are connected to it, and what goes on in the spiritual realm directly affects our physical world. What goes on in the spiritual realm directly affects 
our physical world. So I wanted to illustrate it kind of like a, a curtain. And so Casey, you sit up front today. Can you come help me real quick? She said, I, I got here early so I can sit up front. You know, I love that, right? Come up here, all right? So I want you to pretend like this is uh, looking for what God is doing in the world. And I want you to look through there and tell me exactly what you see, okay? What do you see? Just tell me some things. Drum set, guitars, bass. Well, you know your musical instruments, don't you, right? Yeah, good job. All right. So good job. So you saw a lot of physical things behind this curtain, right? Okay, thanks a lot. Give her a hand. All right, appreciate it. But in the passage of Scripture today that we're looking at, when Jesus was baptized, is what we're going to be talking about, um, that it says in this passage, the heavens tore apart. They tore open, and the voice of God revealed himself. God revealed himself. He revealed a different dimension. So what would normally be drums, guitars, a rug, a microphone stand, all of a sudden, God revealed himself in a different manner, a different capacity. He showed that the spiritual realm that existed. Now, I don't know for certain that everybody saw this when Jesus was baptized, but we know for sure that it, was, it happened and it could have been some cosmic event, but it was the reality. And so God's dimension behind ordinary reality was revealed. And so we're going to see also in this passage that when Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness by Satan, also, God revealed a different dimension there because Satan literally, physically probably, came and tempted Jesus. He actually physically was there in body, possibly, and tempted Jesus. And so throughout the, the, this book of Mark that we're going to be studying, we see that Jesus encounters this spiritual dimension in a way that oftentimes in our world we don't encounter, although some encounters with demonic spirits still happen for sure, in the world today. And so Jesus, when he cast out demons, when Jesus uh, did things that were supernatural, he opened the curtain, so to speak, and revealed this hidden dimension. And the reason I, I say all this is not so that we can walk around trying to uh, you know, cast out demons and fight uh, against demonic forces, because we have enough right here in front of us physically that God has given us to do, minister to people. But we are aware of the fact that there is something going on behind the scenes that we need to be aware of. And that's where faith comes in. Faith, although we don't with our eyes physically see, most of the time in our lifetimes won't see this dimension, a great part of the Christian life is a matter of learning by faith to live by this different reality even when we don't see it. And if you're following along in your notes, and I encourage you to do that today on the back of your bulletin because there's a lot of notes there, and that doesn't necessarily equal a lot of time, all right? So, um, so hang in there. But there is a lot of good things that we want to talk about today. But let me repeat that. A great part of the Christian life is a matter of learning by faith to live by this different reality when we can't see it, okay? So we can't see it, but we still live as if this reality, the spiritual reality is back there rather than just the things that we can see with our physical eyes. And so think about your life. Most of the time, you and I, we don't walk through life realizing there's a spiritual battle going on. Most of the time, we're walking through life and we're thinking, if I can just get from point A to point B or get my kids here or there, then success, right? And oftentimes, we fail to see that God is working and God is doing something and that's what we're going to learn from Jesus today and throughout this book of Mark. That Jesus was fully and completely aware of the spiritual reality and he wanted to do his Father's will. And the truth is we can emulate Jesus. We can follow Jesus in the exact same way 
because we have the Holy Spirit within us, that we become more aware of God's reality, that the reality does exist, and it influences people, it influences situations, and we want to bring Christ and the gospel to them. And so we continually brace God's will in the power of the Holy Spirit, doing battle with the sword of the Spirit, as we're going to see, which is the Word of God. So let's look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 today. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Mark writes, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we admit, we acknowledge that we often um, buy into the philosophies of the world that things are just material, even though we know in our minds that you created everything and that you're behind everything, that we've fallen into the trap of, of Satan to just believe that what we see and the things that we're doing from day to day that really are separated from you are what really matters. And God, every one of us are guilty of that. And I pray that you'll uh, allow us today to see through Jesus that there's something so much greater that we've been called to. And God, just you'll open our eyes to the truth of this world that you've called us to live in for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the baptism of Jesus launched him into his public ministry phase of his life. He was probably around the age of 30. Anybody here about 30 years old? No, you're not. Come on, put your hand on. Yeah, okay, 30 years old, all right? So about 30 years old that this was when Jesus launched in. And we don't know a lot about Jesus' childhood. We don't know much about his youth. But we do see as Jesus moved into this phase that he approaches John as John is baptizing. And we looked at this uh, last week about John coming onto the scenes, John the Baptist as we refer to him. And in verse 4, um, it, we read this. It said, Jesus appeared, uh, I'm sorry, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John, we said last week, wasn't doing a Christian baptism because obviously Jesus had not went to the cross yet. He had not been crucified. He had not risen again. And so this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So we have to ask the question, why would Jesus submit himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins if Jesus was God, he was perfect, and he did not sin? Why would Jesus do those things? Well, we can look in one of the other gospel accounts, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, as we mentioned last week, if you weren't here, Mark really goes through quick. He hits the high points. And so oftentimes we'll be referring back to some of the other accounts to add some more detail into the conversation here. But in Matthew's account, uh, when Jesus came to John to be baptized, it says in verse 13 through 15 of chapter 3, gives us the reason, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John would, not, would have prevented it, saying, I need you to baptize me. How are you coming to me? So he says, look, this is turned around. This is twisted. You're the great one. I'm, I'm small. I'm decreasing. But look what Jesus said in verse 15. He said, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. Jesus said, let it be so now. This is fitting for, to fulfill all righteousness. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why did Jesus, why was he baptized? The first thing is to show a commitment to doing the Father's will. He says, it's fitting for us to fulfill this idea of fulfillment. And we know, and we'll see again and again, as I mentioned, through the life of Jesus, that he wanted to know what the Father was about and what the Father was doing. He was constantly saying, I can do nothing of my own. I can only do what I see my Heavenly Father doing. And you see, he was constantly in communication with his Father. And not something that's just reserved for deity. Jesus is showing us an example that we also should be aware of, God, what is your will? I want to take your word and I want to apply it to my life. I want to be salt and light for you. And so Jesus was committed to doing the Father's will. The second thing, although Jesus had no sin to confess or repent of, he was showing that he identified with sinners. It was symbolic to show that he was identifying with sinners. And if we're going to learn to be just like Jesus, then baptism is important because we're identifying with what he did because he was identifying with us as sinners. Although he knew no sin, he was, as Hebrews tells us, was a high priest who understands our weaknesses. Isn't that good to know that God understands our weaknesses? How in touch with, you, or with your weaknesses are you? All right? Do you, when you look into the mirror, do you say, there's the worst sinner that I know? Or do you say, as the Pharisees and those who oppose Jesus, you know, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy over there or that lady over there. I'm glad my righteousness is so much better than theirs. You see, we're sinners. And we're going to see, uh, in just a second, another reason. But Jesus understands that weakness. He understands that sin. And he understands and relates to it, although he never sinned. He's a high priest. So we go to him when we struggle, when we're in touch, the fact that we are the worst sinners that we know. And we're in touch with those things that we fall short of God's glory and we run to Jesus but we, just be honest with him. Just be real with Christ. I'm struggling with this in my life. I'm struggling with my boss, or I'm struggling in my marriage, or I don't know if I have the strength to be the parent I need to be in this situation. I'm struggling with that temptation. I'm struggling with that thing that you gave me. And he says Jesus understands. He's sympathetic to us. And that's important. So Jesus identified with us. The third thing, it was important for Jesus to be recognized publicly by John the Baptist. Because John was the voice, as Isaiah said, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So John was bringing Jesus onto the scene publicly. He was declaring, here's the one that you've been waiting for. Here's the one that's been prophesied about. Here's the Messiah, the Son of God. The fourth thing, he recorded for all future generations the Trinity and the nature of God. This idea that Jesus, this, this truth from Scripture, that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. One God, three persons. You see, you won't find in Scripture a verse that says, here is what the Trinity is and, and defines it in an easy, nice, succinct way. But here we have in verse 10 and 11 just the, a clear, clear revelation of the Trinity. Let's look at it again, verse 10 and 11. And when Jesus came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
descending on him like a dove, and a voice, this would be God the Father, coming from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So the Father declares Jesus as his beloved son. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all there together. And I think that's important for Jesus. We see from Jesus' baptism, we see a clear revelation of the Trinity. Number five, he was showing us that only he provided the righteousness necessary to stand before a holy God. Jesus was showing us that only he provided the righteousness necessary to stand before a holy God. The verse we looked at earlier from chapter Matthew 3.15, the reason Jesus said, he said, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. And this is cr- critical and this is key. And look, if, you're, if you don't consider yourself a theologian, if you just consider yourself just a casual church attender, you may not even have a concept of why this is so important or so critical, but I think it's important that we understand and hang on to this. This is the idea of what we refer to as the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement, and what that means is that God had to send Jesus in the flesh to die on our behalf. Why? Because God is holy, just, and righteous. And we need to understand that he, he demands perfection. He demands perfect righteousness. And so that's why Jesus had to come, because we don't have it. We don't have enough to measure up. No matter how many works and efforts and good things that you do, you cannot earn it or measure up. We all fall short of God's glory. And this idea of the substitutionary atonement, which comes from many verses, but let me just point to one, 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him, he being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became sin. God sent Jesus, his beloved son, to earth to be, die on a cross, to be punished for the sin that we deserve. And this is, this is a doctrine that's so under attack in our day. Let me just say that. I mean, if you follow anything in the church world, you know that this doctrine is definitely not popular. Why? You might ask, why is it not popular? Even this song that we sing, In Christ Alone, there's a reference in there about God's wrath was being satisfied through Jesus. And there's many, many churches that have just said, we're not singing that song or we're striking that, that verse from our hymnal or, or from our lyrics. Why would that be? Maybe you're thinking, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand. What other reason? Well, they don't like the idea meaning they, meaning there are certain people in the religious world, the idea that God had to punish Jesus, that God had to send Jesus, and that God, his wrath was poured out on Christ. See, they, they're worried. This, this paints God as an angry God. And, that, and that's not politically correct. That doesn't, you know, doesn't fly well in our culture. We, just, we don't need to, to talk about the substitutionary atonement. Let's spin this some other direction and make it be about something else because surely God wouldn't punish his own son. That seems so ruthless and barbaric. But look, a, a couple of things that you need to see and be aware of. Don't buy into this idea of rebranding God. God doesn't need PR agents, okay, to, 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 to put a spin on things and make it more palatable to, to our culture, okay? God can handle himself. He tells us to speak the truth, but speak it in love. But he, he is not ashamed of the gospel and what he says in his word. And so we need to stand strong on that and not compromise on it, no matter what the world around us tells us about these things. 
But the Bible is clear that God is both a God of love and a God who is just. And his love is in no sense in conflict with his holiness, righteousness, and justice, and even his wrath. And so if God, who created the world and he created us, if God said, this is the way that salvation will be accomplished, I'm going to come myself. If you think of it that way, right? God came himself. God didn't send an angel or send a man. He came. God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he sent his son to take the punishment that we deserved. And so everything God does is lovingly loving, just as everything he does is just and right. So God can be loving and just at the same time. And so when we, I, I just, when people question me on this, I say, when we create a world and when we create a, a whole race of people, then we can determine how we want to atone for their sin, all right? But God created it, he's in charge of it, and he chose this way, and this is clearly what his word says, and so we don't need to back down from that. You see, you start taking steps backwards on something like this, that what, what we call the penal substitution, um, that the fact that there's this the atonement and Jesus took God's wrath, and you begin to change God into something that he's not in his word, you distort God and you distort, distort scripture. And so we present God as he's presented. You see where the slippery slope goes. All of a sudden, if, if God is this, oh, he's just this guy who's nice and loving, and, and, and oh, he's, he would never do anything that demands justice, then all of a sudden we can just do whatever we want to do and live any way we want to live because God is just some grandfather up in the sky who, you know, occasionally, you know, we get his attention on something, but most of the time he's just busy doing other things. And, oh, okay, it's fine. Just, you kids, just do whatever you want to do. And so it's so important that we see an accurate view of God from Scripture. And look what God says in verse 11. The same son that he's going to send to the cross to be brutally killed and executed. He says in verse 11, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You're my beloved son. So there's not a contradiction. There's no problem here that God sends Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve. And he says, you're my beloved son. And I'm well pleased. And so I think we see from this, we see that the Father's will for Jesus was much more important than, than Jesus, his human, what he would want. We saw this in the garden where Jesus cries out and he says, Father, if there's any way possible, remove this from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And chances are, None of us will ever be sent to a cross for following God. That will probably never, ever be God's will for you to be martyred or killed for your faith. But the passion for God's will should be every bit the same for you and for me. God, I want your will no matter what. I want you to work through me no matter what. And then, just on a kind of a side note here, I love how Jesus speak, God speaks over Jesus as his beloved son. As parents, you know, you look at this passage and you think, you know, do I ever speak over that over my kids? You're beloved. I'm pleased with you. Dads, for a second, do you know that you have a great influence on how your kids will see our Heavenly Father by the way that you conduct yourself and live as an earthly father. They will interpret a lot about being a, God being a father through you. 
And so if you're an absent father or a spiritually disengaged father, what are they going to think about God? One of the saddest stories that I ever heard, in, well, I was in college and I heard a youth pastor, he was sharing the story about a dad who had found a woman, a girlfriend, and he was literally leaving his family, bags packed, walking out of the door. The mom is, the wife is crying, the kids are crying, and as he's walking out the door, he looks back and he tells the kids, he says, just remember, daddy loves you, daddy loves you, as he leaves the family. How do you think their concept of God's going to be in their life? We have a huge responsibility, men, to step up and be the spiritual leaders. My kids were telling me, one of them were telling me the other day that at the University of Georgia, the Wesley Foundation's huge um, Christian ministry there uh, that happens, and, and they were saying that the, mostly the makeup of this ministry, which is hundreds if not thousands of kids that come on Wednesday night, is predominantly female. Are we glad that females are going to campus ministry? Absolutely. But you know what? We're the guys. We're the men. We're the guys at to take the leadership spiritually. We need men to raise kids and present Jesus, to present God as God spoke over Jesus. You're, you're precious, my precious child. I'm pleased with you. You know, this idea of a loving God who, when he looks at us, sees Jesus rather than our sin, when, we're, when we put our faith in him. That's, it's such an amazing, an amazing gift. Amazing theological concept. That God, when he looks at you and I, if we're in Christ, if we're a Christian, if we're, we've been born again, he sees Jesus, not us. How does that affect us? I, I'm reading a, a really great book with a couple guys, and it's called The Discipline of Grace by a guy named Jerry Bridges. And he writes this, and it's a little lengthy, but it's worth reading. He says, Consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off. You have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plan for the day generally falls into place, and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching as you talk with the person, you uh, silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. And then he goes on, he says, the second day, it's just the opposite. You don't arise when the first alarm ring of your alarm goes off. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have your quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down some breakfast and rush off for the day's activity. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time, and things generally just go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on, and you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. And he writes, Would you be less confident on the bad day more than the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? And what he's trying to convey to us is that an understanding that God's blessing on our life is not conditioned upon our spiritual performance. 
It's not based upon our spiritual performance. Regardless of our performance, we are always dependent upon grace, on his grace, his underserved favor to those who will, um, who will recognize it and see it. And so sometimes we think that God is distant because I didn't do these things. Or my day didn't work out, or, you know, I don't feel God, and there we go, fall back to this mysticism, this idea. Rather than understand that in Christ, we've been declared a new identity. In Christ, we're a new creation, a new creature. Old things are gone. The new has begun. The Holy Spirit resides in you, and, and, and Bridges goes on, and I'll read one more quote from him. He says, I am not pro- proposing a cavalier attitude towards sin. Rather, I am saying that God's grace through Christ is greater than our sin, even on our worst day. To experience that grace, however, we must lay hold of it by faith in Christ and his death on our behalf. So what do we do when we have a bad day? We must go back to the cross and see Jesus there bearing our sin in his own body. We must, by faith, appropriate for ourselves the blood of Christ that will cleanse our guilty conscience. Our guilty conscience. It doesn't mean go back to Jesus to get saved again. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we understand that we, we recognize the cross. All my hope, all my worth, all my value is found in the cross and in the cross alone. Isn't that an amazing leveling that happens in this congregation and in our world when we understand, if not by the grace of God, there go I. Be careful if we think we stand, lest we fall, as Scripture says in Colossians. And so we understand, and, and so we're able to speak the truth in love. We're able to show them and point to a God who is both loving and just. And he's just that he has to punish sin. His nature, his character requires it. But he's loving. He, he doesn't want any to be damned, but he wants all to come to repentance. And so we are the bearers of that message. So because of Jesus, God is for you, not against you. Number six, why did Jesus get baptized? To set an example for us, an example of obedience. I told one guy not too long ago after, I've seen this over the course of my ministry, after big spiritual decisions, baptism, Satan comes after you. I said, be ready, be ready. And he said, man, you're kind of scaring me a little bit, all right? And he literally looked me in the eye and told me, and I said, there's nothing to be scared of because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Yes, Satan is true. He exists. He's real. We may not see him with our eyes, but he really is real. And so as, as just like after great spiritual experiences for us, that model is what happened with Jesus It says in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And so the lesson that we take away from this is that we have nothing to be scared about because why? The same, look at this, look at the verse. The same Holy Spirit who came on Jesus at baptism was the same spirit who drove him out into the desert, into the wilderness for the temptation. So you think God's up to something here? He's doing something? Because temptation plays a necessary and vital role, role in our growth and maturing to be more like Jesus. The temptations, the struggles, the challenges that you face, those are vital. 
God is purifying you. He's trying your faith. He's testing your faith. He's authenticating your faith through these things. And then the second thing is, is important in collaboration with that one. God does allow our faith to be tested, but if we are tempted to do evil as a result, he is never the source. We learn that from James. God never tempts anyone with evil. God allows our temptation, but we understand that the evil that we're drawn to, he allows us to be tempted, but the evil that we're drawn to is a result of the indwelling sin within us and Satan outside of us. And so God's temptations aren't designed to make you fail. But Satan, he wants to see you fail. He wants to see you fall. He wants to see you be destroyed. I read this illustration. I thought, I thought it was great. Kind of the difference here if you're thinking, okay, God doesn't allow this, but, but, but does he, but doesn't he? Think about Ford. Anybody a Ford guy here? You're, like, you're big on Ford trucks, all right, or whatever. All right, if Ford takes a Chevy truck and begins to test that truck, are they testing that truck to show how great it is? What are they doing? What are they trying to do? Expose. They're trying to expose that truck. They're trying to show the weaknesses. Right? But if the opposite is true, I say Ford testing Chevy. But if Ford tests a Ford, why, why is Ford testing the Ford? They're testing it to improve it, to strengthen the quality of it. And so think of your temptations and your struggles that way. Get God's perspective on it. God isn't trying to destroy you. God isn't trying to harm you. God is, is showing, uh, revealing himself more and more through you. And the things that we see happen in our trials and our struggles could never happen on a normal, easy, just go through a carefree day, humdrum, pedestrian day. It's those trying times, those difficult times that God is working for us to make us more like Christ. And so that puts a whole different perspective, doesn't it, on the things that you go through. Sure, we don't like it. We, we don't say, bring it more. You know, I, I love this. I mean, we're, that's not what we're asking here. We're saying, God, when you allow these struggles and these temptations and these trying times to come in my life, one, Jesus set a pattern. He set example. He went through it way worse than I could. He was dealing with Satan himself. I can assure you, Satan's not coming in here and directly going after any one of us, all right? He has bigger fish to fry probably than us, but we're, we're dealing with demonic forces that we don't see, and God is strengthening your faith. He's making you more like Jesus, and you trust that. You understand that, and God tells us he'll never give us more than we can handle. He'll, he can never give us more than we can handle. What's that idea of more than we can handle? What's that about? It's about that, that true believers, get this, true believers persevere in their faith. They don't, they don't walk away from their faith during trial and during temptation. They don't give up. They don't throw in the towel, so to speak. He enables your faith to persevere no matter what comes at you. So a true believer sticks through and, and, and pursues God and, and, and sees that this is bettering him and making him more like Christ. You don't say, I'm done with this. I'm done with faith. And you leave faith. So God's not going to give you more than he, you can handle. And so are you suffering? Are you under great temptation right now? Remember the reality behind the curtain. Think about what, what, what's God doing? Well, let me embrace what God's doing. And then the third thing that I think we see from Jesus and his temptation is, and we see this in Matthew and Luke because Mark really hits this quick and just in a verse or two here, and Matthew spends 11 verses, Luke 13 on it, but it says that every temptation was combated with Jesus by the words, it is written. When Satan came at him, how did he respond? Satan, it's written. 
Don't test the Lord your God, my, your God. You can't do this because Scripture, God's promises, God said this. And it's the same pattern for us. When temptations and struggles come at us, we understand God's promises, His truth, and we anchor into that. And we say, Satan, yes, you're the father of lies. And you're, yes, you're, what you're telling me, it's seductive, it, it's, it's tempting, but God said this, and this is truth. And you're not going to know that unless you're in your Bible reading and studying. You know, I love the kids you know, quoting scripture. Awana on Wednesday night, they're getting tons of scripture at that time. You know, as adults, it's, it's a lot tougher, right? I've been working on the same verses for like five weeks now, and, and, and it's just like won't stick in my head. But kids and just, just get this stuff so easy and so quick. And the scriptures that I memorized as a kid, they're still there today in King James English, but they're there, right? And, and, and so I can recall those things, and they come to mind in those moments. And so scripture is what we fight Satan with, and we expose him for who he is and the lies that he presents. And what is faith? Faith is seeing life from God's point of view. Faith is seeing life from God's point of view. So let's wrap this all up and bring it back in together. This is real. It's true. Don't spend all your time saying, man, I want, I want, to, see, I want to see demonic activity. I want to see the supernatural stuff. I mean, that's, there are people who just they spend their life there, all right? Here's what our pursuit should be. God, I went by faith. I know that's true. I believe it. I don't see it with my eyes physically, but it's there. It's true, just as true as anything else. And I want to know your will. I'm going to step into my life each and every day, getting my nourishment from you, knowing your word, being prepared to live out your will through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's what we've been called to do. How are you doing on that? For real. How's your spiritual nourishment? How is your time with God and your perspective during the day? When adversity comes, do you say, I hate this place, or I hate that person, I hate that situation, I can't wait to get out of this? Or do you say, God, I'm not really enjoying this, but you're up to something. You would not allow this if you weren't doing something bigger that I don't really see but it's true. And by faith, I embrace that for your glory. Because I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm going to honor God with my body, which is God's. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just the beautiful baptisms today and just the testimony of your grace and your provision. Really a testimony of, of, of you, first and foremost, but of Mitch and Megan, earthly father, earthly mother, who are building into the life of their kids the truth. And God, I pray for those who are in here that maybe look at Mitch or others and Megan and, and, and just say, I can never be like that. God, help them to remember the same spirit that's in them is also among all who believe, is with us all. We're in Christ. The Holy Spirit is within us. And God, I pray, rather than running and seeking after experiences, that we will seek after you, know your word, and as Jesus said in example, stand against the forces of darkness through the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. God, we confess that we're spiritually lazy most of the time, and we're spiritually 
just oblivious to the truths that are going on around us and we're mostly about us. God, we confess that as a church. We want to be about your business. We want to be doing what you are doing. We want to be about the Father's will. And we thank you that in good days and bad days, you speak over us. We're your beloved children. And you're pleased because of Jesus. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.